Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Ethan Steimel, here for episode 53. Thank you for being here, and a special thank you to my Patreon patrons. You know who you are, and I love you. Today's guest is Patty Hirsch, a journalist, broadcaster, and novelist. He has worked in every journalistic medium and a variety of countries in Asia, Europe, and the Americas. He is a specialist in business, financial, and economic news, and his work appears regularly on national public radio in the U.S. and on the BBC World Service. We discuss compound interest, how it works, and why we need to understand it. Before we get to the interview, a reminder that the Artistic Finance 6K, our live episode, is airing this Wednesday, May 5th. We'll be investing $1,000 into six different asset classes. So that's $6,000 of real money. If you want to participate... Become a patron today and vote in our poll to decide what stocks we're going to purchase. Join at $3 before May 5th, which is when that level goes away. And if we get 50 patrons by May 5th, we will continue to publish weekly episodes. Otherwise, we're switching to an every other week format. On this week's Patreon episode, we discuss investing in wine, the GameStop short squeeze, Bitcoin, and the financial crash of 1792. If you want weekly episodes to continue, and you want to access all extended interviews and early releases, do that at patreon.com slash artistic finance. Thank you in advance. Other ways you can help us pay for these $6,000 of investments is to visit our website and sign up for Coinbase or Robinhood or Webull using our affiliate links. Or send us a one-time payment via Venmo, PayPal, or Cash App and mention you want it to go toward the Artistic Finance 6K. To listen live on Wednesday, make sure you download the Podbean app and tune in at 8 p.m. Eastern. We'll also accept call-ins through the Podbean app. So if you have a question or a comment, you can call in and join the conversation. Again, you have to download the Podbean app, which is free. My co-host for the evening will be photographer Mark Santos, who was on the show in episode 43 talking about credit card advantages. Links to everything we talk about today is in the show notes and on our website, artisticfinance.com. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Patty Hirsch, welcome to the podcast. It's my pleasure, Ethan. Thanks for having me. And just for context, if anybody listens to this in 10 years, we are recording this on April 6, 2021. So we are amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, and we're also amidst a Black Lives Matter slow burn in the United States and across the world. And hopefully coming to the end of both, actually, with a bit of luck, you know, with a positive resolution in in both, I, I would hope. Me too. Me too. We are very hopeful. Could you give us a little introduction to yourself? I am a an author and a journalist and like a sort of blogger and I and I focus really in finance and economics. Uh, until very recently I was the editor of NPR's daily business and economics podcast called The Indicator from Planet Money. Uh, I've also written a book about finance and about the financial markets called Man Versus Markets. So I've been working as a journalist for about 20 years, and that whole time I've also been writing fiction. 
in the last couple of years, I've started publishing that fiction. And um, I've enjoyed that so much that I've actually kind of uh, started to, to decide to move away from journalism a little more and into the fiction writing a little more. So I'm pretty much now almost a full-time fiction writer. So full-time artist, really, and really a part-time journalist. Whereas before I was more a full-time journalist and a part-time um, artist. So I've made that change, made that move into, into the artist world, which is has been is being is an interesting transition. Most enjoyable, little scary, but uh, really, really good fun. I'm really enjoying it. I do a little bit of journalism on the side at the moment. I'm doing a little bit of editing here and there and working in the podcast world. But uh, most of the time, I'm pretty much writing full time right now. Could you describe your demographics for us? Yeah, so I am a white cis male. I live in Los Angeles. I'm originally from Ireland, from Northern Ireland specifically. I think that's it, isn't it? Yes. I have two follow-ups though, actually. And you don't have to say your age. I'm old. I'm old. Self-described as old. And then actually your education. Uh, university education, but not post-grad. So undergrad only. Educated in the United Kingdom, which obviously makes me, you know, sort of post-post-grad in America. I'm just kidding. Just like standard, standard undergrad. Before we get to the compound interest discussion, what is a live event that you like to experience as an audience member? You know, I do actually love uh, live classical music. I'm not really a live type person for the most part, but I really like classical music. I think it's because I'm slightly nervous of the unpredictability of the live performance. I think... Um, I've I've attended so much improv in my life that it scares me a little bit. So, but I find that classical music it's so kind of laid down and ordered. I I really enjoy that. So that's my I'd, I'd love a, I love a, I love a live string quartet is what I really like. What is a piece of art that you like? So my favorite piece of art is it's in the Leeds Museum of Art in England in the north of England. It is a picture of the Scots Greys, which is a which was a, a cavalry regiment in the charge of the light brigade the charge of the light brigade was a a charge an absolutely insane charge done by a, a unit of the british cavalry during the crimean war where they just charged full frontal into the russian guns and were cut to pieces i mean it was it's a it's a it's a piece of military folly that's very very interesting to read about but this painting is a painting of this unit the scots greys they're called the greys because their horses were all that the, they were all light gray and of course the the people on top of the horses were all dressed in red and which is what the, the british used this cavalry unit but it's painted from the front as if the, the 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 horses are charging at you and they are all shoulder to shoulder and it's an incredibly visceral painting it's huge and you stand in front of it and it is as though those horses are about to run over you it is a really kind of skin bumping hair-raising experience just looking at it so and i've spent many hours in front of that painting it's been a while it's funny actually i i I thought about it when you emailed me beforehand to ask me what that was and there are a number of paintings that i really i get a real pleasure from but that it reminded me of that painting for some reason and i i've been thinking about it a lot recently and i can send a link to you for this link to it for you it is a fabulous painting yeah please do you know as you were talking i was gonna say have you been there to see it and then you answered that question because I have found that the scale of a piece can impact your emotion toward it. Everyone in the United States has seen George Washington crossing the Delaware. I never was impressed by it. It's just something we all know. And then I was in the Met one day and I turned a corner 
and bam, there is George Washington crossing the Delaware, and it's 10 feet tall by 15 feet wide. It's just huge. And, and then experiencing that in person, it's like, oh, wow, I actually, <laughs> I'm reacting more. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's and I don't think it's even just scale. Scale, I think, is really important. But it's, for example, I went to see, um, I've become a huge fan of Rembrandt over the years. I, I saw some paintings of his in the, the Rijksmuseum in, in Holland years ago. But every time there's, a, there's an exhibit in a city that I'm in, I always go and see it because the the way that he paints his the, the way that he uses light in his paintings because it's they're usually quite dark paintings but usually his portraits there's like a they wear these crazy ruffs that they used to wear or there's lots of sort of white linen sort of piling out of the jackets that the men are wearing and the the light on these on this white material is just absolutely i mean dazzling and i can spend hours just looking at these people and it's literally faces coming out of you know, three centuries of, of time coming at you. It's just remarkable. So yeah, I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of that. But I agree, seeing a painting in the flesh, as it were, is so much more visceral and impactful than 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 looking at it, which is why I think it's so interesting to to, to hear about this, these new uh, sort of digit pieces of digitized art that you you read about right now. I mean, I think that I I I, I appreciate it in principle, but I, I have actually a little bit of difficulty thinking about how that would resonate with me just on a computer screens, but it's, it's fascinating. You're talking about NFTs. I'm talking about NFT. Exactly. I didn't want to use the acronym just in case, but yes, yeah, that is exactly what I'm talking about. But we're, we're actually going to have an episode on those. That's, that's great because it's such a, that's such an interesting thing right now, the whole blockchain and the way that that's being used for every part of our lives from security to finance to art. I mean, it's, it's, it's a fascinating subject. I'm glad, really glad you're doing something on that. It's really just cryptocurrency. And there is an art element, but it's not the art as the image. It really is the, it's the the essence of commoditization. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Onto your financial personality. Are you good or bad with money? Uh, I'm not great with money. Um, I tend to work with money in very broad brush strokes, right? So I, I have a sense of how much money I have. Um, but I am, I do, I'm not good with the details, right? I'm, I'm married to a, a, a beautiful, intelligent woman who really understands finance. And she basically takes care of the nitty gritty. I know if I've got, I know how much I've got. And what I tend to do is I tend to underspend, right? So I restrict myself. That's the way that I kind of manage my, my finances in principle. Um, but she really takes care of the nitty gritty. Thank God I'm married to her. Otherwise, you know, who, who knows where I'd be. But so I, I would say that I'm, I'm not great. I'm not bad, but I'm not great. I really, I have a sense of if I'm overspending, right? I have that sort of, to just kind of know where I am. I know where the landscape, but I would say that overall, not that great. I love not that great. somebody who used to work for Planet Money at NPR self-describes as not great with money. <laughs> and I tell you what, most of the rest of them are at Planet Money with the greatest respect to my former colleagues and, you know, or present colleagues, some of them, they would say the same thing. I mean, and that's, and that's the great thing about that show and about that unit is that they come to it um, as, as children, right? It's like they, they have the mind of a child when they're, when they're looking at this. They're like, oh, they're really curious about it from that point of view, as opposed to someone who knows all about money. They're not curious about things, so they don't report them in the same way to an audience that really doesn't understand about money and, and the, the economy and the way that works. Yeah, so I mean, I would say, you know, when it comes to 
investing. I just, I think, and the, the advantage for that for me is that if I don't, I, if I know myself and know that I'm not that great with money, it means that I keep it really, really simple, right? Because I don't keep it complex. I don't, I don't do any crazy things. I keep it super simple. And that just makes, that just makes everybody a lot more comfortable, including my wife. Growing up, did you have good financial examples to learn from? Well, yes and no. I mean, my, my parents are divorced and were divorced when I was 13. They're both okay with money. My, my mother is very good with money. I mean, my mom used to sit, I used to, I can remember um, in my teens going to see my mom and my stepdad and they would sit together on the Sunday with the finance pages of the Daily Telegraph, of the Sunday Telegraph laid out in front of them and their books. And they would go through their books, balance their budget, look at their investments every week, every Sunday afternoon. I was always like, wow, that's, and that's a great example. My dad, on the other hand, is a much more, I would say, um, and my mother's very conservative in her investments. My father's much more aggressive in his investing. I think he's probably, he's probably too much of a risk taker, uh, but he's, he's done okay. And again, he tends to be a guy who tends to underspend. So he kind of knows where he is and he's like, I better. So I think I take after him in that respect. But I've also learned that it's dangerous to be too risky. So thanks to his example, seeing how the risks that he's taken, I tend not to take very many financial risks. All right, now on to compound interest. So the reason we're talking about this today is because there are certain things in all these interviews that keep coming up over and over again. And one of them is real estate and something else is compound interest. I pulled two quotes from history here about compound interest. And the first is unproven. I don't think this is actually true, but Einstein saying compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world, emphasizing how important it is. And then Benjamin Franklin said or described it as money makes money and the money that money makes makes money. I love both of those. Both smart guys. Both smart guys. My question to you is what is compound interest? Well, as Benjamin Franklin once said, it's <laughs> <laughs> We should say that the reason that you're asking me this is because I used to work for a company called Marketplace, which is a public radio program, and whilst I was there, I produced a series of sort of explainer explanatory videos on various sort of parts of financial markets and investing and that kind of stuff. They're really, they're really great videos. Most of them are very short, like sort of two minutes, and they explain concepts really simply. And you can find them on YouTube. If you search Patty Hirsch whiteboard, they'll pop up or marketplace whiteboard, they'll pop up and you'll see the whole, there's a bunch, I think there's like 60 of them or something. Anyway, one of them is about compound interest. And the reason that uh, I actually tended to, in these explanatory videos to do more sort of explainers of the way financial markets worked. But we found that, you know, compound interest again with us at Marketplace was something that was coming up again and again and again. And people were saying, what is this compound interest thing? And compound interest is basically just when you invest money and you take the interest from that money and you just put it back into the principal. So a couple of terms, right? So when you invest some money, right? Say you put money into a bank account that earns 3%. There are two parts to that transaction. Firstly, there is the investment of the principal. So the principal is the $100 that you put into that account. The interest is the 3% a year that gets thrown off, the $3 that you get extra a year um, as a result of that principal investment, right? So there's principal and there's interest. Now, compounding is when you take that 3% interest and you just put it back into the account. So at the end of the year, you've got $103. And then you get interest at the end of the next year, not on $100, but on $103. So it's a little bit more, tiny little bit more. 
and you put that money back in again. So you're compounding, right? That's the verb. You're compounding the return on your principal, right? So your principal expands over time, $103. Next year, it's $107. Next year, it's $110, right? So it's compounding and the interest is still 3% every year, but because that principal is getting bigger, the interest gets bigger. And so the piece, so the, the, the actual principal itself grows much larger over time. So that is the principle of compounding. I hope that made sense. No really good analogy for this. I like to use analogies, but that's really, it's almost an analogy in itself. Say you have $100 and your goal is I'm going to put in $100 for the year. Is it best to put in that $100 at the beginning of the year? Somewhere in the middle, it doesn't really matter. Or should I do the $10 a month? Will that impact this at all when I'm thinking about trying to take advantage of this? When you're thinking about saving, it doesn't really matter, right? how you make it work, except that it's the most convenient to you. That's the most important thing. So it's like, if you're saying, I can, I, oh, I've got a hundred dollars here. I can, I can, I can save, a, I can save a hundred dollars a year, right? It's obviously going to be more than that, but let's just say that's the number. I can save a hundred bucks a year. I would say, what's the best way that that works for you? What's the most convenient? If you can take it at the beginning of the year, if it's, it's there, it's like, oh, I'm going to say you get, because we're artists, right? We get paid in different ways, right? Sometimes we get, you know, you, you get a gig at the beginning of the year and uh, you know, you, you get a lump sum for that and that's all you get for the rest of the year. Well, in that case, take the hundred bucks out of that and, and sock it away. If you get paid every month, right? So your, your pay is being spread over the year, then do it monthly. But whatever works for you budget-wise is the best way to do it, right? It's You don't lock yourself into, into a box saying, oh my God, I've, I've got to do it monthly. Because if you get paid once a year at the beginning of the year, then that's probably not going to work for you. So do whatever works best for you. Think of what that number is. And then how is that easiest for you to do, right? That's That's the best way to do it. There's no hard and fast rules about this. It's what's most convenient for you. And I would say though, you know, it's worth anyone who's listening to this. It's like, well, so I'm 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 getting money and I'm getting interest, right? My money is making money. There are a number of things that you can do with that interest, right? That that three percent that you're getting paid, and you know, three percent on you know a hundred thousand dollars is a significant amount of money. So what do you do with that three percent? Well, there are a couple of things. You could you can take the money out and you can spend it, and that's useful sometimes, right? Is to spend that money and to to do things with it on to you know to invest in your business or to you know help with a car loan or whatever it is that's one thing you can do the other thing you can do is you can take that money and you can invest it elsewhere right so you can take that three percent and instead of rolling it back into the account you can maybe put it in the stock market or do something else with it and then it can make money and that's something to consider right because that can be useful too because you can take your three percent put it in a higher yielding like a place where it's going to make more money and you may make more money than you would if you were compounding, right? But that's a, both of those things, the problem with both of those things, not the problem, the thing about both of those things is that they are both active uses of money, right? The great thing about compounding is it is file and forget. It is passive. You do it, you put it in there, you forget about it. And, oh, look, at the end of 10 years, oh my God, it's made that much money, really? How, how did that happen? It happened because you did nothing to it. And that's the really, that's the real beauty of compounding is it makes money without you even knowing about it, right? If you have to take money and invest it in the stock market, 
you've got to make a decision and maybe the market goes down and this and that it's it's like a it's a it's a headache not not a necessarily a bad headache because it can make you a lot of money but you've really got to think about it if you're spending the money sure you're spending it on something great but then the money's gone right that may have spent you may have spent it on something that's going to make you money like for example you may put it to a car loan and you're driving uber or you're delivering food and you make money from that then maybe you're making more money than you would if you compounded it yes but you still have to think about that compounding you just don't have to think about it you fire you forget and look at the end of the day you've actually made more money that's the real beauty of compounding it's totally passive we're talking about compound interest which is if you're saving money it's going to get interest but compounding is the idea and you can do that with other things so like in the stock market if you have stocks that pay you a dividend and they give you money back you can take that money and buy more of that stock and compound that way that's not compound interest but that is compounding and it works exactly the same way i i am 33 and in my whole life interest rates have always been low saving money to me is not wise like it's important to invest it so i try to use the compounding in terms of stock market can you talk about interest rates and how they impact compounding so this is the horror story right with the economy that we're in right now in many ways the economy is 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 doing great right it's on fire it's a great economy people more and more people are being employed now it's as we come out of covid the economy is beginning to look really really good it's on fire and one of the reasons it's on fire of course is because interest rates are so low and because interest rates are low it means that companies can borrow very very cheaply and they can expand very very quickly there's lots of money sloshing around the system and that's great you know if you're in that type of business if you're a saver it's an absolute horror story right it's also very dangerous for the economy in a way because it means that investors themselves like big corporate investors they're really really hungry for yield so a yield is the same as the interest, right? It's like the money that you get for the money that you invest. Investors are like, oh, we're really, we really want to lend to people, lend money to people, but we're not getting much money back on our interest because interest rates are so low. So what we want to do is we want to find other places where we can get yield. And that's why the stock market is on, is on fire in the way that it is, because it's providing these yields. Like you're investing in a company like, say, for example, so use a company like GameStop which I don't know if you've talked about this, but this is this gaming company or this video games company, which is just shot through the roof purely because of speculation and people are sort of playing games with this stock. But it means that if you got in low, you're making unbelievable amounts of money. So that's why people are really seeking yield, right? And that's why, you know, if you're an investor like you, if you're 33 years old and you've got several thousand dollars and you're like, where should I put this money? You've got a choice between putting in a bank and getting 1% on your money, if you're lucky, right? Or going to the stock market and speculating and going, I could make loads of money. So it's kind of, it's very, very difficult to make that very, very conservative choice, right? So you're right. A lot of people are saying, oh, well, maybe I should invest, if not in stocks themselves, then perhaps in a fund, right, that gives me a certain return or maybe even an organization that is going to guarantee me a return, right? And there are organizations out there, they are investment companies that will guarantee you a certain rate of return. Now, you've got to be very careful about these because some of them might turn out to be a Ponzi scheme. That's exactly what Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme guaranteed you, 12% base, 
right? Everyone's like, oh my God, 12%, it's Bernie Madoff. He used to be, you know, the chairman of the SEC or whatever it was. Let's invest with him. And of course, it turned out to be a crazy Ponzi scheme. So you've got to be super careful, all right? That's the thing about a bank. If you invest with an FDIC, uh, you know, Federal uh, Deposit Insurance Accredited um, Bank, right? Regulated heavily, super, super safe. You're only going to get this much money, but at least you're guaranteed to get this much money. If you invest with a stock fund, like a hedge fund or something that's investing a, hedge, a fund of funds, you're not guaranteed anything because they, those things can always collapse. So there's a lot more risk there, but there's also a lot more possibility of return. But, but you're right. If you put money into those funds or into individual stocks and you take the dividends and wrap those back in, that is effect, that is compounding. And, in, and, it, and to some extent, to a degree, that is actually compound interest, right? Because if you have a stock that's paying a dividend, like a blue chip stock that plays a certain amount of money every month as a dividend, that's income, right? That's, an, that's almost like a bond in a way. That's almost like a loan that's throwing off interest. If you take that and you buy more stock, then in a way that is almost compound interest, right? Because that dividend acts really. So that's why a lot of people, that's why a lot of cons, quite conservative investors and older people who are because you know the way that this works is as people are younger and they're more aggressive, they invest in stock, right? Because there's, they've got presumably more life and they've got more time to make mistakes. But as they get older, they tend to invest in bonds um, and loans and a blue chip stock with dividends because blue chip stock with dividends tends to be very, very like a bond in that it throws off this income every month, which you can reinvest or you can spend. So I've talked a lot there, but that's, that's, a, that's a very interesting distinction that you're making and it's something that a lot of younger people like yourself are thinking about because interest rates are so low it's so hard to get that yield we always talk about it with the example of money in a bank for as long as i've been able to think for myself i've known that i don't actually want to put it in the bank like that's the emergency fund that's the money i need now but that's not my investing money that's not my money to grow because it's just going to lose it in a bank. I, I do like that you said yield, because if you research compound interest, you get this APY, annual percentage yield. And I've always sort of ignored it because I always thought that meant interest. And it does at a bank. But in your example of stock and the dividend, that yield is not just the interest. It's whatever money you get back, whatever dividend you get back. Maybe I'm going to try to use APY, annual percentage yield, more often. I thought it was tied to to interest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it, it is to an extent, but of course, you know, when you're a, a bond's yield depends on you know where you bought the bond, and that adds to the to also to the to the fixed rate of interest. So that that changes. But yeah, there's that distinction between yield and the interest rate or the coupon, as they say on the bond, is is it's a it's a subtle but important distinction. Especially, I mean, you know, when you're talking about it in general terms, it's fine, you know, to to kind of scrub the difference between them. But when you're actually doing the investing, it's really, really important to know the difference between those two things, because that will really determine what it is that you decide to buy and sell, right? And how you handle that money. It's, it's a, it is an important distinction. But when you're talking in general terms, I think, I think you're safe. I think you're safe enough. And actually, another thing I just thought of now is we're always talking about ETFs and index funds. And the important thing is you park your money there. And the important thing is the low fee. Yes. And I now realize the reason that small fee is so important is because it also compounds. So if you're paying less of a fee, 
that means you have more money to compound. That's absolutely right. So in the long run, that's really important. That's very, very important. I mean, I'm not a big man for giving investing advice, right? But there are a few things that I'm, I'm very happy to give advice about. And I would say that if you are investing in an ind, I'm not, wouldn't, would never tell you what type of fund to invest in. It's up to you. But if you pick an index fund, you should not be paying, you should be paying micro interest on something like that. Because the whole point of an index fund, the reason you pay fees, right, into a fund is because you're paying the manager who's going out there and making a decision about what stocks to buy. You buy an index fund, there's no decision to make. All they're doing is they're buying the range of stock in the market. I mean, they may weight it a little bit, but they're just buying what's in the market or what's in that fund, what's in that index rather. So they're going to buy all 500 stocks in the S&P 500. They're going to buy all 1,000 stocks in the Wilshire 1,000. They don't need to make a decision. They don't. What, the only reason you're, the only fee the only reason you pay them a fee is just because they've invented this thing. It's like you're paying them like a little bit, like a like a cent. So when you're looking at people, when you're looking at those funds, super low fees for an index fund, super, super low. You know, you look at the Vanguard, which is the kind of the gold standard there, mega low fees. Can you talk a little bit about how removing part of the principal could affect this compounding? We've talked that compounding works no matter what with whatever amount of money. A small amount or big amount, it's the same sort of percentage that it's either going to keep growing. If you have a retirement fund, there there are options that you can sort of borrow that money for a year to three years and pay it back. How would that affect my my savings long term if I chose to remove some of the principal, a chunk of it? Let's use the thousand. Let's, let's, let's make it a bit bigger. There's a thousand dollars in there now, right? So you may say to yourself, "Oh, I can I can take a hundred bucks out of it and I'll I'll give it back at the end of the year." All right. If you do that, then okay. So now there's a thousand dollars, and you're getting three percent on the thousand dollars, right? So that's now thirty bucks that you're getting. So at the end of the year, you'll have a thousand and thirty. Except that you won't because you've taken a hundred dollars out. So now you're only getting you're getting nine hundred. You're getting three percent on nine hundred dollars. So you're not going to get a thousand and thirty. You're going to get a thousand and twenty-five or a thousand and twenty, whatever it is, right? So you're getting. If you take money out, you're getting less money back. And even though you're putting that money back into it, you're still behind. But you may say, oh, well, I'm going to give that $100 back later. But yes, but you're not going to get the interest on that $100, right, that you've taken out. You took out that 100 bucks. you're doing something else with it, fine. When you bring it back, yes, you're plugging the money back in there, but you're still losing that little bit of money. So it means that you're already behind on the compounding curve. The whole point of compounding is to or compounding if you're saying it in the US is to is to is to put it in there and leave it and forget about it until you need it until you really really need it which should be ideally when you actually do retire and you're going to take that money out and do something with it pay the tax on it at that point whatever it is so you know there's again i mean i, I don't give investment advice because i'm not a i'm not a professional I do remember though, when I ran um, a, a personal finance show at Marketplace called Marketplace Money, um, we would bring financial experts on and they would, they would hammer the table and be like, do not touch your retirement account on any account. I mean, unless you're absolutely desperate because as soon as you start raiding the account, even if you have the option to pay the money back, then you're falling behind on your compounding and you can really ding yourself. 
And also then there's the danger that you might lose that money and not be able to put it back in, in which case you're really behind. So I would say that the, the erosion of your principle is a, has a very negative effect on your ability to compound, even if it's only a small amount. So it's, it's probably not advisable. Okay, there's something called the tipping point, which I think is a mythical thing. You put in the principle, grow the interest, and at some point, you're now making an interest sort of an amount that's larger than even the original principle you put in. And I like this idea in, in theory, because I think a lot of people, when they start, that $30 in interest, yes, it's $30 we didn't have before, but it's not a significant amount of money for us to keep that $1,000 parked there for that $30. If we think about a tipping point where at some point you've put in so much money that the interest is now growing faster and faster, understanding that for us can make us want to take advantage of compounding more. I think it's something of a fallacy. I think if anybody's listening to this and they're like, I'm, I'm still a little confused about what compounding actually looks like. There are compounding calculators out there that you can, and lots of them actually, there's a bazillion of them. They've compounded over the years as the internet <laughs> has grown, sorry. So you can go on and you can just plug in some numbers there and you can see it for yourself. And they'll, they'll the good ones will produce this graph and it's almost like this crazy kind of sine curve that goes, that pops up or the front end of a, you know, this leaping curve that shows you how fast you earn money on your money. Now, of course, if it's just a thousand dollars, you know, it means it's only, you know, 30 bucks a year, right? If it's $3 million or $30 million, then suddenly you're talking about real money. So, you know, it, it's easy to think, well, it's only a little bit of money. It's only going to earn a little bit of money. Yes. But eventually it turns into big money and big money earns big money, you know, or, you know, medium money earns small money, then big money earns medium money, but then really big money earns big money. So it's worth, and, and the thing is, is that principle, right? If you keep your principle and don't rate it, you can always add to it, right? So over the, as, as you gain more wealth and you have more capacity, you know, or you, you, get, you get paid a little bit of a windfall, like so you book an extra gig or whatever, or you, oh, look at that. I, I published a couple of short stories on Amazon and they're suddenly making a lot of money. Well, let's, let me just put that and sock that into that individual, that original account. And suddenly that starts to compound. It's like a bigger amount of money that's compounding now. And that starts to grow. So if you add to your principle, taking away from your principle has a negative effect. Adding to your principle has an overwhelmingly positive effect, like an outsized positive effect because of the way compounding works. So I would say that, you know, if you're thinking about that tipping point, check it up, go and do look at some of the math, look at some of those calculators. And I think that will, that will convince you a lot more. Now, I think that, you know, because of the way that the market's working right now, because interest rates are so low and probably liable to stay low for some time, just as we grow the economy uh, and the, the way this government's going to be spending, um, it's worth thinking about compounding not as the only strategy that you have for saving, but just as part of a portfolio of managing your money, right? Maybe you've got a compounding, you've got a compounding bank account or a CD or whatever it is, like a and here's the thing, right? You were talking about um, the, the the amount of the money that you can make from like a regular bank. You're absolutely right. You pay the re the reason that you get get paid much interest from a bank is because you have the option to take your money out at any time. You can go to organizations that will lock your money up for a for a year, and you'll get a better interest rate because it means that they've got to play. They've got a year to play with that money before you take it out. 
Now it still operates in the same way as a bank account. You put your money in, you get a certain percentage, you can roll that back in, grow it, all the rest of it, but you lock it up for certain periods. So the more tied up your money is, you hear this phrase, right? Oh, I'd love to lend you some money, son, but it's all tied up. The reason it's all tied up is, is because there are restrictions on being able to get that money out. The more restrictions there are on it, the more interest you should get on it. And in which case you use that as a compounding base, you're gonna to start to make more money. So if you're thinking about the, all of the money that you have to invest, think about the place that you compound that money, like this interest account, as just one part of that. You've got that, you've got your bonds, you've got your stock, you've got your Bitcoin, right? Maybe you do, I mean, you know, some people do that. And so you've got like a range of options. Just think about that as one part of that portfolio. Yeah, that's an interesting way to think about it. It's, yes, you have a bank account and that is compounding. But then, yeah, you have your stock account, that's compounding. Maybe you own a home and it's appreciating and, and that's compounding. And maybe you're paying off your uh, student loans and sort of that's reverse compounding. So all that together is your compounding. It's not one specific account. It's everything all together. Yeah. So we talked about how compounding can work in the negative. If you remove the principal, that's going to hurt you. Say I own a home and I have a $100,000 mortgage on it. Compounding can work in the reverse, right? Because I'm paying interest every year on that 100000 And as I pay it off to so 90000 then I'm paying less in interest in theory. Well, I wouldn't say it really rever- it's it's not compounding at that point, right? Because it's not like the interest is being reinvested, right? The interest is just being taken away, right? The money that you pay uh, to the lender who's lending you whatever, it's probably not the original lender, it's probably been sold on like 18 times. But anyway, that person that you're paying the money to for the privilege of having this loan in order to buy this, to have this house, that money just disappears. It doesn't really get compounded, right? But you just, what you have is this principle that may never, that will always be the same. Unless you have a loan, right, where you've arranged it, and you can arrange a loan this way where you pay not just the interest, but a certain amount of principle along with the interest every month, right? So you may pay, I don't know, what, what are rates right now? Like let's say they're three, ooh, three, that, the gorgeous 3%. So loan, so you might, you can probably get a 3% loan right now. That's incredible, isn't it? God, remember my parents had a 16% loan on their house. To think about that, ladies and gentlemen. And that's the other side to it, by the way. Everyone's like, oh my God, well, you can't save. You've got no money on your savings. Yes, but you can borrow and buy a house and you can borrow at 3%, which is just unheard of. I mean, I think 2, 2.5% that was being quoted the other day. Anyway. So, so what you can do is you can, you can arrange a loan where you pay that 3%, right? But you also pay a certain amount of principal, right? So a little bit of the $100,000 loan that you had, if you were lucky, um, right, also goes away with that principal. So you end up paying not, what's 3% of $100,000? 3,000. So you, so you just pay that 3,000. Say you, say you pay 3,500. I know there's a little less principal that you, you have to pay. So it means that the next month, it's not, you know, 3,500, it's now 3,000 because the principle is lower, right? So by eroding that principle over time, it means that your interest rate every month is going to be low or the amount of money that you have to pay in interest every month is going to be lower, right? Because your principle is smaller. So it's always worth paying off your principle to some extent, unless the money is really, really cheap, which it is right now. Because if you think about it, if you were in a house and 
you were you were renting a house and you were paying three thousand dollars in interest or say four say say four thousand dollars in rent a month right but the interest rate on your mortgage is only three percent is only three percent only three thousand dollars because it's a hundred thousand dollar mortgage you know if you can afford it maybe because that money's so cheap maybe it's worth not a paying down your principal right maybe it's worth it just it depends everyone's calculation is going to be different right so everyone's going to say well you know three grand a month for rent effectively not that bad maybe i'll maybe i'll do that you know as, as, as instead of because then the, the because the money that you would have used to pay down your mortgage you could invest that elsewhere and make money on it right but the question is are you going to make more money elsewhere on the money that you would use to pay down your mortgage, right? Which is going to reduce your costs. Is it the, the calculation is, is it better to reduce your costs and pay less interest? Or is it better to, to gain more money investing it elsewhere in, a, in the market or in a, in a CD or something somewhere else? So that's the, con- that's the calculation you're making when you're thinking about that reduction. But I would say that, that you know, the ru- again, the rule of thumb that was always kind of banged into us by um, these investment advisors was always the less debt that you have, the better. Right, you want to be as debt free as you can. Now, there's a there's there's a sort of counter to that. There's a lot of people in the in the, the world these days who are saying debt is so cheap, get loads of it. Personally, for me, I, I'm just not comfortable with a lot of debt. Right, I'm just just not. I would rather pay down my mortgage pretty fast. I mean, not all not all at once because the money is so cheap, but pretty fast because I just don't want to be caught. It's like it's like the old saying about the tide going out right? Oh, the tide goes out and suddenly you can see who's naked, right? The tide goes out, right? Interest rate starts to go up and suddenly you can tell who is over leveraged, right? Who's got too much debt? Because suddenly if interest rates go up and they've got a flexible interest rate, boom, suddenly they're paying 10% where they were paying three. They can't afford it. They have to sell the house. It's just a horror story, right? So uh, for me, I just don't want to be caught unaware. So my inclination as a, as a quite a conservative person financially would be to pay that stuff down. I always thought, oh, I would just try to pay the mortgage early or sooner because of that security. And the more you read about money and finance, and then people call it good debt versus bad debt, <laughs> you read enough and then you think, oh, I, I would almost be silly to pay off the debt. Because in, in my brain growing up, it's like, okay, if I had a $100,000 mortgage, and I'm paying X amount in interest every month, and then I have $100,000 in the stock market, my thought was, well, I would take that stock market money and just pay off the mortgage because then I'm not paying any interest (laughs) and I have security of owning the home. But the more I read and the more I learned, it was like, no, no, keep that money in the stock market because in theory, it's making a higher interest, a higher, it's compounding at a higher yield than the mortgage interest that you're paying. And so it's what you're saying. It's there's no wrong way. You could pay off the mortgage fully or you could not and keep the money in the stock market. It's just about you personally. Do you want security or the illusion of security or are you not worried about having that? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's all about your appetite. This, this is all about your appetite for risk. That's what it is. Because you put your finger on it when you said, theoretically, the money that you've got in the market should make money. Now, what happens if it's 2008, right? Because this is a lot of people got caught out in this way. Okay, so interest rates were relatively low in 2005, 2006. They bought a big house. 
They got a lot of debt, but the debt price of the debt was pretty low, no problems. And then, and they, and they took that, they took a lot of them stripped equity out of their houses, right? They, they mortgaged their houses, took a second mortgage on the houses and they took, some of them took money and they put it in the market, which was just rocketing, right? Suddenly 2008 hits, right? Lehman Brothers goes bust. The stock market goes through the floor, right? We lose literally 10 years of gains overnight, pretty much. And suddenly all of those people who took that money out of their house, that money is now gone. They're now massively levered. Sure, still they had a 30-year interest rate mortgage, so the interest rate is not that high, but they've got no other money. That's all they're doing now is dealing with that house and paying and paying the mortgage off on that house. That's a horrifying situation to be in. Even if it's tenable, it's not a situation I want to be in. So the question is, how risk-averse and how risk-friendly are you? If you're willing to take that risk and you can afford to take that risk, sure. Go ahead and do it if you feel okay about that. Me, I'd get an ulcer. Like I wouldn't be able to eat in the morning. It would just be a nightmare. So I just, I, I, for me personally, just physically for me and emotionally, I, I can't take those kind of risks. My father apparently can. So good for him, right? You know, he's happy to invest in gold mines in the Philippines. Like, go for it, mate. You know, but I, 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 I can't, I can't do it. So it's, it's all about how, who you are, how you feel, and and what you're comfortable with. I feel like you gave us a great explanation of compound interest. It's a complicated topic and there's a lot to it, but it's also really simple. And I feel like you you gave us a good, simple explanation. Is there anything else that we should talk about about it before I head to the wrap up? I don't think so. I mean, I, I, as I say, it's it's one of these things that should be part of a portfolio, right? I think not just your not just your whole thing, particularly now because interest rates are so low, but it is a really, really useful thing. And it's worth just saying, let me see if I can find a, a nice high-yielding CD. I yield three percent these days. If you can find it and and do it, you know, obviously do your research. Make sure that the company that you're investing with is accredited and you know regulated and all the rest of it and covered and insured and all of that kind of stuff. But it's a it, it is a great way to make money passively and easily, quietly, so that at the end of the day you turn around and because this is what happens. My dad the other day turned and said, oh, oh, yeah, I forgot I had an investment with such and such. And it was like, it was a seriously, it was some serious money in there. You forget because when you diversify in this way, sometimes unless you're keeping real track of this stuff, you can forget stuff. And then it just pops up. You're like, oh, my God, I totally forgot about that. And look how well that's doing. That's, that's, that's a great feeling to have. What is some financial advice that you would give yourself back when you started your career or would you give somebody else that's starting out right now? Find an amount of money that you can afford every period, whether it's every quarter, every month, every year, and put that away and automate it so that you don't think about it. Monthly is great. You know, if you, if you get paid a salary, right, monthly is great. If you get paid like in a lump, you know, think about that chunk, but think, identify what the size of that chunk. And it's something that you're, when it goes, you won't even notice that it's gone. Automate it and have it go into that place, wherever that place is, whether it's an index fund or whether it's a bank account or whether it's a CD or whatever it is, but automate that and just never, so that you never, ever think about it and that you never notice it's not there. And it just becomes part of your budget because it's gone. I didn't do that until far too late in my life. And I wish I'd done it because if I had been, if I'd made a decision to save, and um, even if I was only getting paid, you know, on an occasional basis, if I decided to save 
a hundred bucks a month, right? 150, maybe 200 bucks a month. And I'd done that from the age of 18. I mean, I'd be a, I'd be a multimillionaire now, right? I would, I'd, be, I'd certainly be more than a millionaire at this point at the, from the age of 18. And that's, now I think about that and it's heartbreaking. It's, it's actually not, but it's like, cause I, I enjoyed my money, but it's, I really wish I'd done it. That's why, so I keep my, my fake million dollar note here just to inspire me every day. This sort of plays into it. It's a saying, the best time to plant a tree is 10 years ago. And the next best time is today. I think the same applies to compounding. Obviously, when if we all did it when we were 18 and we only had to put in $5 a week to be a millionaire by retirement, that would be great. But that's not the case for many people. But I think it is that consistency. That's the thing. It's like, it's the, it's, it's firstly the consistency and it's secondly, the literally the, the automation of it so that you don't even know, you don't even notice that it's gone. You didn't even know it was there in the first place, right? It's that comfortable amount. It's, it's the paper cut. You didn't even notice it. Oh, I had a paper cut. Oh yeah. It's that, that's, that's what you want. And it's the, it's that kind of mindlessness. I mean, I think you should, I'm, I'm trying to be more mindful in my life now, but when it comes to stuff like that, it's great to be just mindless about it, just to have it cleared out. It, when you have to think about it, you're like, Oh my God, I've got to take a hundred bucks out. That means I can't spend it on whatever. That's the curse. That's the, that's the nemesis. The thoughtlessness of it, just having it automatically gone and not even be there in your consciousness is a, is a blessing. So that's what, that's, that's what I would say the advice is, regardless of the amount. And like you say, if you haven't been doing it up to now, start doing it now. Is there a book or a resource that has helped you learn about finances? So there are two great books. Uh, the first is, um, it's one of those slim little volumes, the kind of the, the narrow volumes that you, you see. It's, it's the Wall Street Guide to Money and Investing. It's a really bare bones, simple book about budgeting and investing. Totally simple, great little gift for people who are starting out. The other thing that really helped me was, was I have to prove, is my own book, Man Versus Markets, Economics Explained, Plain and Simple. And the reason I say that is it's not, not purely to promote my own book, which of course I want to do. It's because when I was researching that book and writing that book, I learned so much. It was like so useful to me because there were bits of the market that I really, I thought that I understood. Like, for example, it's basically what it is. It's a really simple explainer on the way markets work, everything from stocks and bonds up to credit default swaps and the crazy stuff, right? Now, the crazy stuff I actually had a really good grip on because I reported on it for many years. But when I sat down and I started to write about bonds, very, very simple in principle, just writing, I was like, oh, they're actually a little bit more complicated than I thought. And I really had to sort of dig into it. And it really gave me a really deep understanding of the way the, the deceptively simple parts of the market actually do work and these instruments that we use. So uh, I find that it was, it was a, a great book to write and it's, I pass, I, I give it away to people for gifts now. I mean, it's people still buy it, which is great, but um, it's, a, I, when, for example, when I was in my job, um, I gave a copy to everybody when they joined the team and they were like, oh, this is, they, they really find it useful. So I, I think it adds value at this point. That's fantastic. And I love your point that you had a big, a good grasp on the crazy stuff because you reported on it. And then when you were researching about the mundane stuff, then you learned about that. And that's something with this podcast. I mean, we talked about wine. I just assumed I knew that wine was a crazy investment for really rich people or people who really love wine. And I have now learned that it actually is feasible for anybody if they want. And it's not an irrational choice. It's not a crazy idea. You know, buying a p bottle from somebody in an alley, sure, that's, that's crazy. But yeah, don't do that. That's, that's not why. 
Uh, great. We just, we turned from PG right now. <laughs> yes. But actually, now I want to challenge our listeners. If there is something that you want to learn about finance, like compound interest or something like that, reach out to me and propose an episode of this podcast. Be willing to sort of do the research and come to the table with all this information. And so if you want to be on an episode of our show and you want to talk about a specific thing that you want to learn about, do it because you'll probably learn so much and it's going to help you. It's going to compound because if you do that this year and you learn all about like Bitcoin, that's going to help you for the rest of your life as opposed to if you never do it. So challenge, if anybody wants to learn something about finance, any aspect, you know, email me, artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com and propose coming on and teaching us all about it. Intellectual compounding. I'd be delighted to help. I'd be delighted to help you with that, actually, Ethan. So I, I'm, if anybody wants to throw the challenge to me by proxy through you, please let me know. And I'm happy to talk about anything from literally from uh, the, the different classifications of common stock all the way to special purpose acquisition companies. The SPACs. Okay, so two things that I have no idea about. Actually, no, that's not true. SPACs. I just listened to a podcast about SPACs. Yeah, SPACs are SPACs are crazy. Yeah. Okay. Do you know about QRPs or eQRPs? I do not know. Wow. What, what? Yeah, this is something. So, so, so this was a little bit of a different episode because we talked about a specific topic. But normally, I ask guests, "What's your retirement plan?" And I have a whole list of everything. You know, IRA, four hundred one k, pension, blah blah blah. And somebody said, oh, yeah, I have a QRP. And I said, what? <laughs> this will come out after the episode. But next week, I have a guy on talking about qualified retirement plans. This entire thing that I knew nothing about. Like SPACs. You said SPACs. I never would have thought about SPACs. I, I never would have understood that word, except that I just learned about it. <laughs> right. I mean, it's crazy. And by the way, for anybody listening, a SPAC, and a, a SPAC is kind of like a blank check company, but the two are thing are, two things are slightly different. So when you, when you read in the Wall Street Journal, oh, a, a SPAC, also known as a blank check company, they're not actually quite the same thing. Wow, we just, you just, there was like three new things we just learned that are above all of our heads here. <laughs> okay, what can you and I do to stress the importance of compound interest or finance or savings to our fellow artists? Artists are in this really difficult position, right? Because we're pursuing something, we're pursuing a dream, if you like, that does not necessarily is not necessarily going to yield you money, right? It would be nice if it made you money too, but a lot of the times, it, a lot of the time, it doesn't. So the most important thing that you can do is to support your art by supporting yourself, and one of the best ways that you can support yourself is by saving. Because there's a real temptation to take that money and to put it into whatever it is that you're doing. But if you can, if you can find a way to save that money, it is going to help you be a better artist. All right, because it's going to make you feel more secure. It's going to make you, it's going to make you feel more that you have accomplished more because you can look at that investment as it grows, whatever it is, and that will make you feel better about yourself, and that will transmit itself to your art. Of course unless you're the kind of artist who wants to be tortured <laughs> all the time, which, and there are those. But I would say that if you don't want to be tortured economically and financially, saving and compounding being a part of that is a great part of that. So do yourself a favor and sock that money away and compound it if you can. I, I think all our listeners agree with you. We do not buy into that 
starving artist, suffering artist. A starving artist is not a happy artist. And you want to be happy in your work, right? I think everybody does. <laughs> don't, don't, be un, don't, don't choose to be unhappy. Choose to feel fulfilled. Choose to, choose to be happy. So choose to save. Last question for you. Where can people find out more about you? Paddyhirsch.com. Uh, I have a YouTube channel, which is uh, YouTube slash Paddy Hirsch. Uh, my book, Man vs. Markets, which is the financial book, is available where all good books are sold, of course, on Amazon and all the rest of it. Um, although I would love you to buy your books through IndieBind, which is the independent um, label. Uh, my two uh, fiction books are, Ma- are, are uh, The Devil's Half Mile and Hudson's Kill, both of which are historical thrillers set in the late 1700s, just after the first financial crisis in America in 1792. So worth a good read. Again, available where all good books are sold. And if you'd like, uh, you can subscribe to my newsletter, which went dormant for a year during um, COVID because so busy covering the the economic meltdown with NPR, but is about to be resuscitated. So uh, you can uh, do that through my website as well. Once again, that's paddyhirsch.com. I should also say my book is also translated into Chinese. That just came out republished recently. We have one Chinese listener. Really? Yes, and I know their name, Ben. Ben, <laughs> we've got a book for you. It was literally just republished in Chinese, so it is, it's, it's now available. Patty, thank you so much for giving us your time and your, your knowledge. But thank you for having me, Ethan. That was our interview with Patty Hirsch. My takeaways were start early and invest however you are comfortable doing it, as long as you are investing. Also, automate investing and don't pull out the principal. That's the whole point of compound interest is to keep the money there so it can grow for you. Remember to tune in live on May 5th for the Artistic Finance 6K to find out what $6,000 worth of investments we make. This is real money we're putting up. And when I say we, I mean me. To vote on what we're going to purchase, become a patron to access our poll and send us suggestions. Join at $3 before May 5th to access early releases and extended interviews. The $3 level is going away on May 5th, so join before then. On this week's Patreon episode, we discuss investing in wine, the GameStop short squeeze, Bitcoin, and the financial crash of 1792. And as always, if you want access to the outtakes but you're not ready to become a patron, Email me at artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com and I will share the audio with you directly. Join up at patreon.com slash artisticfinance and thank you in advance. For details on Wednesday's show, listen to our Artistic Finance 6K announcement special episode. We explain more how you can get involved and if you want to help us fund the investments. You can find that on our website or you can scroll back through your podcast app. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a rating and review. Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Nicole and Ethan Steimel. Producing consultant Anne Nygren-Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. Music by Chong Liu. Music by Chong Liu.